Now, I was preparing myself to preach a sermon on faithfulness. We have been walking through the fruit of the Spirit slowly, one quality at a time. And our guiding verse has been Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and then joy, and then peace, and then patience, and then kindness, gentleness. I have generosity in there. Faithfulness, gentleness, there comes gentleness, and self-control. And today we come to faithfulness. So I was thinking about faithfulness. I was thinking about faithfulness being promise-keeping. Like the promise that we make to each other on our wedding vows to be faithful to our spouse, which is at the high point of in-lovedness. But then having to keep that promise year after year, long after the high of the wedding has faded. Faithfulness takes real effort. I was thinking about faithfulness being reliability and, and uh, steadiness and um, dependability. It's a long-haul gift rather than an immediate gratification one. And in fact, if we look at the fruit of the Spirit as a whole, each one independently, we can see that it's a gift intended to carry us through the ups and the downs. But with faithfulness, we can see in our mind's eye the marathon before us that requires faithfulness. And isn't it such a blessing that on that long road ahead with all its twists and turns, that the Holy Spirit gives us faithfulness as a gift? I thought about faithfulness being sacrificial and helpful, that it requires something out of you that you have to give to others. And again, each fruit of the Holy Spirit provides a harvest that not only nourishes you, but also a whole lot of others along the way. The fruit of the Spirit is a fruit that keeps on giving. And most especially, I was thinking about faithfulness as presence, being there for others. What we appreciate about a faithful person more than what they say is that they are present. And we may forget their words, but we don't forget that they were there when we needed them, when it mattered. Now, what about faithfulness have I left out? Anybody have any other thoughts? Any other words that describe faithfulness? I got it all? Trust. Trust very much. And I'm glad you said that because I'm going to get to that a little bit later. But yeah, trust is good. Oh, not requiring recompense. So you give and you don't expect an equal measure back. I wonder how Preston's going to put that up there. I don't know. Not requiring recompense. <laughs> Selflessness. Yes. Not giving up. That's good. That's a good one. Ooh. Yeah, because I can be consistent for a day. But to be faithful, you can't give up after a day, yes. Okay, those are all really good. Uh, think about that quality of faithfulness and uh, see if you can identify a person in your circle of friends or family who you would describe as 
faithful, maybe that person is you, it's a valuable quality, and we are very fortunate here to have so many faithful people in our congregation. When we think of it as a fruit of the Spirit, we see faithfulness as passing on what we first received ourselves. The Holy Spirit gives us that fruit, and then we pass it on. Now, we are currently preparing a cohort of Stephen ministers. Stephen ministers are trained to provide high-quality, one-to-one, Christ-centered care to people in the congregation and the community who are experiencing life difficulties. And our new ministers are just a couple weeks shy of finishing their 50 hours of training. They've been working hard for several months. We will be having their commissioning in March. Stephen ministry is a ministry of presence. The way a Stephen minister cares for others is to spend an hour a week, one-on-one, in person with a care receiver for as long as it takes for God to heal. Stephen ministers care and God cures. That's our motto. They're there for the long haul. And every week of training... We learn new skills and we review that lesson by applying it to the caregiver's compass. Every week, we're tying our learning to being compassionate, being full of faith, being skilled, and being trustworthy. And I think faithfulness and trustworthiness, you said trust, go hand in hand. And then we apply each lesson to keeping Christ in the center. Christ is in the center of all we do. So much of Stephen ministry is tied into faithfulness. I considered going out of order with the fruits of the Spirit so that I could land on faithfulness on the day when they are commissioned. Um, But then I looked at the actual Greek word in Galatians and found that it was pistis, faith. Faith. Is there any fullness in there in that word? not in the original word. And so then my mind went off the rails at that point into a different direction. The actual word is faith. It can be translated as faithfulness as well. But the stronger word is the simpler one. And I thought about the fruit of the spirit is faith. And that changes things a little bit. I looked up several translations. The King James has the shorter word, faith. The fruit of the Spirit is faith in it. The message translation says that this fruit is loyal commitments. But pretty much all the other translations use the word faithfulness. But faith, that short word, yes? The what? What do you mean? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I can't, I'm not. I don't know exactly what you're asking, but I'd love to answer that question. So, anybody else know? Okay, I'm not quite sure. I'll have to follow up on that one. Um, okay, so the fruit of the spirit, I started thinking, is faith. And Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, you see, he had a problem. Galatians was a Gentile church. And Paul had a problem with some visitors from Jerusalem, which were Christian missionaries, who had come to them and told them they were doing it all wrong. They needed to follow the Old Testament law 
to essentially become good Jews at the same time they were becoming good Christians. And specifically, there are three main uh, identification points, ethnic distinctions that separate the Jews from all others. It was circumcision, Sabbath keeping, and the kosher dietary laws. And these Christians from Jerusalem were urging this new Gentile church to conform to the Jewish codes in order to be fully welcomed as the family of God. Or if the Gentile Christians refused, they were suggesting Jewish Christians to remove themselves from table fellowship with the Gentile Christians who did not follow those kosher laws. They were really advocating two tracks of Christians, the Jewish Christians and then everybody else. Separate but equal. We all know how good that works out in real life. So these were the OG race-based segregationists long, long before Jim Crow came into being. And this letter from Paul is shouting at them in the loudest voice, stop, don't do it, don't follow the Jewish Old Testament law. And this is from Paul who was steeped in the law, who had learned it and knew it probably better than many a Jew who was trained in the law. Don't do it, he says to the baby Gentile Christians. And then in Galatians 2, verse 15 through 16, he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. See, the Jews thought of Gentiles as sinners. Yet even we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe, that word is pistis, faith. We have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Jesus and not by doing the works of the law, because no one will be justified by the works of the law. So that word faith is there three times. Faith in Jesus Christ, believe in Christ Jesus, justified by faith in Christ. Now, so that there's a technical word justified. We don't use it in everyday conversation, but it's a word that means rectifying, setting our relationship with God right. And it's a justice word. And whenever we read it, the hairs on our neck should stand on end. And we should get a chill up our spine because it refers to God's action someday in the future of powerfully setting right all that has gone wrong. All that has gone wrong. Not burying the wrong, pretending it doesn't exist, not forgetting about the wrong as if we could, but God actively, powerfully putting all wrongs right. That word justification, rectification, refers to our personal relationship with God, which has gone wrong because of our sin. But it is so much bigger than that. It refers to everything that is evil in the world, ecological wrong, violent wrong, systemic wrong, status quo wrong, worldwide wrong. God will set it all right from the lowest point of the rotten root of evil to the tippy top furthest reach of its tallest branch to every single tendril that gets mixed up in our lives, in the whole universe, God will set it all right. This is his salvation promise. Faith is looking into the future and 
holding God to his promise. Faith is believing that God will deliver. So what do you believe? Can God deliver on that promise? Does he have the power to set all wrongs right? Can God make right the wrongs done to you personally? And that involves a process of inner healing, of leaving justice to God, of leaving mercy to God. That's harder, leaving mercy to God. It's a process that eventually compels us to forgive that other person. It's a process because it rarely happens overnight. But whether it happens fast or slow, do you believe that God can make right the wrongs done to you? And do you believe that if he can do it, will he do it? Now, the other side of that coin is, do you believe that God can make right the wrongs you have personally done? And think about the ways that you have hurt other people, the ways you have hurt God. Think about the most unkind, unloving, selfish, harmful thoughts, actions, impulses that you have exhibited. And think about the persons on the receiving end of that that you dished out. Do you believe that God can make that wrong right? It requires repentance. It requires forgiveness. It requires a bottom-to-top transformation. This is also a process. And so if you multiply that your own microcosm by billions of relationships and structures and the way things are done, we can see the enormity of the work that God has ahead of him for salvation. Can God set it right? Do you believe that one day he will? That's faith. Justification, justice, that's a heavy word, a transformational word. It's pregnant with what God will one day birth. Um, please don't tell my daughter Lauren about this book because we're going to give it to her for her graduation. But it's called The Women Who Caught the Babies by Eloise Greenfield, artwork by Daniel Minter. And I want to read to you a poem. <laughs> what? What's that? I'm having faith that my daughter is not in church at this moment. <laughs> this is called After Emancipation, 1863. She, the midwife, felt the excitement circling through the room. She knew the reason, knew that it was more than the joy of a baby, a new baby coming, but didn't let herself think about it yet. She had work to do. The mother and the other women ignored it too until they were sure that all was well with mother and baby. Then they could think, think about this new thing that was circling around them. The grandmother called the men and children into the room. The father spoke, our first child Born into freedom, he said. 
He knelt and prayed, the others repeating after him. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this new day, so long in coming, this freedom for all of us, and especially for our children. Amen. Amen. And I can't help but see a metaphor for God here birthing us, giving us a born again, born from above, new birth into freedom, born of the spirit into the kingdom of God, full and complete salvation. Only God has the power to justify, and this is why even if we were capable of obeying God fully, even if we could achieve a perfect score on keeping the law, our works are limited human acts and they don't have the power to justify us. There has also been in this passage, these verses in Galatians 2, an argument among scholars over the meaning of faith in Christ. You are justified by faith in Christ. A person is justified not by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Some, many, take it to mean that we are justified by means of the faith that we have in Jesus. I have faith in Jesus, and therefore I am justified. And that's a very common understanding of this verse. But the Greek here is ambiguous, and it could refer maybe not to our faith, but to Christ's faith. We are justified, we are set right, we are rectified through Jesus' faith in his Father. Isn't that interesting? An unshakable faith that led him to the path of the cross, unwavering. Jesus so completely trusted his Father that he willingly died, having faith that his Father would vindicate him and would raise him back to life again. And we see Jesus walking those steps of faith and obedience while on earth that led him to the cross. Jesus himself not being able to see beyond the moment he was living in exactly, exactly the same way we don't see beyond the moment we are living and having to trust God and have faith in his Father. Taking steps of faith himself having faith in his father's goodness and his father's power to bring him back from death into life. Look to Jesus' faith. And Paul may very well be saying in Galatians 2, at least, that we are justified by Jesus' faith, not by our own faith. And so our passage would read this way, verse 16 would say, Yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe that's our faith. We have come to have faith in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by doing works of the law because no one will be justified by the works of the law. And this reading helps us to resist the temptation to make our faith a work, a thing that we do that saves us. If it is my faith that gets me saved, then I have to worry about the quality or the power or the purity of my faith. Is my faith strong enough to get me answered prayers? Is my faith strong enough to get me into heaven? And if we understand instead that Christ's faith gives me justification, we avoid that problem altogether. 
And which would I rather rely on, my faith, which goes up and down, or Christ's faith, which was tried and tested and true? Good enough for him and me, for the both of us. Now, we have been reading the Gospel of Mark in youth group, looking at Jesus. We've been thinking about, like, what if I was there? What would I see and say? What would I think if I was walking with Jesus like those first disciples? And we notice, as everyone does, when they read about Jesus, that he did a lot of healings. And we notice that not always, but often, sometimes, Jesus connects faith and healing. So someone in the youth group, a brilliant person, asked the question, can you make yourself believe? Can you make yourself have faith? I think it's the most excellent question I've heard in a long time. If Jesus told you, this person said, if Jesus told you, walk through this fire, and I will give you a million dollars, could you make yourself believe to do it? And that spawned, let me tell you, an intense conversation, including some bargaining, some clarification, some search for wiggle room. I could walk through coals because I saw someone in Hawaii walk through coals. Is it coals or is it flames of fire that you have to walk through to get the million dollars? Somebody wanted to know. Are you sure Jesus didn't mean coals? No, it's fire. Well, is the fire knee high or is it over your head? That was one calculation. Somebody was really doing the math on that one. What if I could make myself believe 90%? Like 90% is almost there. Would that get me through the fire? Or what if, what if it was 80% faith? Could that get me through the fire? Would that be enough faith? And then there was some theological clarification that had to happen. Jesus would never promise to give you a million dollars. Come on now. But would you walk through fire to get to heaven? which is way better than a million dollars. But is it? Is it better? You can do a lot of things with a million dollars. That was our faith. That was one conversation we've had on faith lately. But there was another conversation where someone said, if someone put a gun to your head and told you to renounce Jesus and they'd let you live or don't renounce him and die, would you renounce him? Oh, yes. Everybody shook their head, yes, it's, it looked like to me. Like, oh, yes. That was almost unanimous. With a gun pointed to your head, are you crazy? Yes. I would renounce Jesus with my words, but not in my heart. And then someone said, I'd renounce Jesus, but then I'd go and ask him for forgiveness later on. That kind of seemed to be a consensus. But what if the guy shot you regardless of your answer? What if he was tricking you? And then the next thing you know, you're face to face with Jesus before you could ask him for forgiveness. And when the last thing you said was, no, I don't believe in Jesus. Isn't heaven with Jesus worth more than your life? They had to think about that one. They might still be thinking on that one. Faith is challenging. 
And I don't think you can screw your eyes shut and just make yourself believe enough. I don't think you can make yourself believe enough. But scripture tells us that the fruit of the spirit is faith. We get Christ's faith as a fruit of God's Holy Spirit in us. This is true when we first tune into him. For it's that Holy Spirit that attracts us to Jesus initially. And it's true time after time when we will need more faith than we possess ourselves. Scripture tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. It can mean either, either thing. And we're going to take both. The faithfulness that we need ourselves and that we need to give. Someone said, faithfulness is granted to the church as a fruit of the Spirit. That faithfulness is not different from the faith by which the Gentiles are rectified and no different from the faith of Jesus Christ. Faithfulness, and I like this way of putting it with the fullness in a parenthesis, faith and faithfulness is a sign of the Spirit's presence and work. Do you believe in Jesus? Let's bow our heads. Oh, Lord, the struggle with faith, the struggle with believing, the struggle with knowing you, the struggle with trusting you. Lord, you know what that is in our lives. And I pray that for every heart that opens itself to you right in this moment, that your Holy Spirit would give us that fruit of faith and the fruitfulness of being faithful. Lord Jesus, we pray to receive this faith from you, a trust in your awesome salvation plan that includes us, which is why we are opening our hands to you. It includes us right now, and it includes the whole world. Yes, Lord, we believe in you and help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.